just to help me organize my thoughts, how many people are in the room today who were not here last week? Yeah, okay. Sigh. <laughs> the problem is, particularly for you guys, I have to do everything that I did last week in order to get to what I want to do this week. So let me do it quickly. Um, Mac, can you give me a hand passing out the toolkits? Ah, there we go. And Mac will give you a hand, too. Because, well, let me do it this way. Tomorrow is the winter solstice. And the Roman imperialists have told us that that's the beginning of winter. Give me a break. <laughs> it's the middle of winter. The solstices and the equinoxes are mid-seasonal festivals, not beginning season festivals. And the Romans just decided to throw the calendar off half the year because they were so obsessed with looking at things in the sky and having clear markers rather than doing the math in their heads and having a fuzzier beginning time for the seasons. But the Romans were also willing to do the math in their heads because for them the measurement of the hour changed constantly. The hour was a particular portion, and the longer the day was, the longer the hours were, and the shorter the days were, the shorter the hours were. So they're constantly dealing with this hour fluctuation. Maybe it made them too nervous to deal with the calendar fluctuations. I don't know. It's hard to tell. Anyway, we are the inheritors of this craziness, and it means that for six months of the year, divided up four times, our instincts are at odds with what the society tells us about what the season is. We have been at odds with society up until tomorrow night. Actually, I think it's sometime in the middle of the afternoon where it actually happens. The equinox happens when the sun stands directly over the equator, where both the poles experience the sun as cut in half by the horizon, and rather than rising or setting, the sun appears to travel around the whole horizon once. It's equinox because the day period, the daylight period, and the night period are the same. From tomorrow on, there will be a kind of relaxation because our psyches will be more in tune with what the society is telling us. They're saying, oh, it's winter. And we'll go, I thought it was winter. <laughs> I guess it really is winter. <laughs> and we can move ahead with things. Now, probably most of the people, my guess would be all, but I don't want to step too far, are not aware of that particular source of anxiety and confusion. Just because we aren't aware of it doesn't mean it isn't there. And I have devoted my entire life, uh, not just my adult life, but the other day, the organization that I founded, the International Association for the Study of Dreams, 
finally adopted an idea of mine, and I think they adopted it because they forgot it was mine. (laughs) Because I've been proposing it for a long time, and everybody's like, no, 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 no. What they decided to do was to call for contributions to an anthology. Uh, Contributions are still being accepted. I would urge everyone in the room to consider sending in your own contribution to an anthology focused on dreams that changed my life. I think that's been a tremendous lack in the literature for as long as I can remember. There are individual people who in their autobiographical statements talk about dreams that changed their lives. But to the best of my knowledge, this is the first time an effort has been made to put them all together in one place. And if that job is done with half the skill that I know we're capable of doing it, I am not on the committee, so (laughs) I can't vouch for the skills. But if we do it with half the skills that are available to us, this book will turn out to be a game changer. Because people will read it, and they will begin to think of the dreams that have changed their own lives, and they will begin to see how many there are, and this rational materialist propaganda that dreams are unreal and have no merit or value to them will be significantly undercut where it counts most, which is in the conscious minds of everybody. So I'm very excited about that. My contribution, I think they're going to publish it, is a dream from childhood. That's why I say I've been at this for so long. It's close to the earliest dream that I remember. I was, this time of year, I was staying with my maternal grandparents in a failing farm in New York State. The boundary of my grandfather's failing farm was the same as the boundary between New York and Massachusetts. So we did all our shopping and going to the dentist and going to the bank and all that serious stuff in Massachusetts because it was easier to get to than the nearest big urban center in New York. Every once in a while, my mom would drop me off with her parents when it just got to be too much for her to look after me. She was a single mother. She and my dad managed to estrange themselves from one another before I was born. So he was off in the war, and she was back home. Anyway, all I know for sure is that I was so short that when I went to tell my grandmother this dream, I stood lower than the knobs on the propane stove that she was cooking breakfast on. Proportionally, they were like that much higher than I. So my guess is maybe five Maybe six, hard to say. Anyway, I awaken from this very compelling dream. And in the dream, the Disney character Goofy and I are exploring a dark castle that is owned by a very nasty, scary giant who has stolen all kinds of stuff from everybody since forever. A little bit like the giant at the top of the beanstalk. And Goofy and I are looking for what I later learned to think of, thanks to Alfred Hitchcock, as the MacGuffin. I didn't know what it was, 
but I was pretty sure I would recognize it when I saw it, and everybody's looking for it, and Goofy and I are looking for it. We're creeping around inside the dark castle, trying not to draw undue attention to ourselves, and we peek into this really dark room, and I see a funny shape on the floor, barely distinguish it, and I think that's what we're looking for. And I whisper to Goofy, I get up, jump out, and we go into the room, and then I hear the sound, probably, yeah, there's enough gray hair in this room that everybody recognizes the sound of the little metal chain pull on the light. Oh, yeah. you go, and I hear Goofy about to yank on the chain pull and turn the light on, and I'm afraid we're going to be discovered. And I have this terrible conundrum. I want to be urgent enough to, to keep him from doing it, but I don't want to be loud enough to be heard. So it's... And I go, no, 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 turn the light on. And he turns the light on. And I see on the floor in front of me the best toy ever. It's a castle. And it's filled with little figures of me and all the Disney characters. And I look at it and I realize that each little tableau is taking place at a different time, but they're all there together. And it's this magnificent castle. And I am absolutely stunned. And I wake up. And I scamper downstairs to talk to my grandmother, whom I believed at that time in my life knew everything. It's another reason to think I was younger than seven. (laughs) Anyway, I really believed that she was the kindest, wisest, most wonderful person in the world. And I was so excited to tell her the dream because then she could maybe tell me what it meant. So I ran into the kitchen where she was making breakfast and I told her the dream. And she said, oh, sweetie, how interesting. And I said, yeah, yeah, really interesting. What does it mean? And she turned and looked at me from a great height and said, oh, sweetie, it's just a dream. It doesn't mean anything. And I was so shocked because I knew it meant something. I just didn't know what it meant. And here she's telling me it doesn't mean anything. And at that point, the dominoes began to fall. And I had the thought, expletive deleted, whatever the expletives were at that age. I don't know. Golly, maybe. (laughs) Golly. If she's got this wrong, what else has she gotten wrong? And I have this awful realization that I'm going to have to take responsibility for everything in my life, that I'm not going to be able to trust anybody, no matter how smart and wise and loving they are. That I can't, smart, wise, loving isn't enough. Can't take anybody's word for anything, no matter. And in many real senses, I'm still riding on the energy of that dream. I'm a Unitarian Universalist because of the energy of that dream. I am a social activist because of the energy of that dream. I've been thinking about it for decades. 
And one of the things I know about it is that the repertory company of Disney characters was my first encounter with the archetypes. And it was in a form that I was amused by as a kid. There are all of these figures. They play different roles in different stories. They wander around in time. They wear different costumes, but there's a certain amount of continuity. Mickey Mouse is always Mickey Mouse. Goofy is always Goofy. And that that understanding of how the Disney characters worked was my earliest understanding long before I even knew Carl Jung's name or heard the word archetypes or anything like that. That's one of the reasons they took that form in that dream. Another one of the reasons is that Goofy is in that particular pantheon, if you will, the archetypal trickster. And he appears foolish and self-destructive, but what he does always turns out to be right. And it's one of the great principles of the archetypal world that what the good person does is always right. Even if it appears foolish or selfish or counterproductive or whatever from the perspective of everybody else in society at large. The giant is one of the more interesting characters in the dream. I never see the giant, but he is definitely male. He lays claim to the castle, and he punishes anybody who gets in his way. And at one level, at a personal level, that's dead. And at a larger level, that's Yahweh, Jehovah. That's big Jesus in the phrase, big Jesus is watching you. (laughs) Uh, I have a a reproduction of an orthodox icon of Jesus with his eyes sort of... And it's a tradition in icon painting that one eye looks right out at the, at the viewer and the other eye sort of looks at the viewer, but not quite. It's a little bit off and it implies a simultaneous interior contemplation that goes with the focused external one. And it hangs over my desk at my little office at home with a, a little sign underneath it saying, Big Jesus is watching you. <laughs> Just so I don't forget what the tradition is. <laughs> and by that, it's not only the Christian tradition, but the left-wing protest position coexisting with it, because obviously it's a joke about Orwell's 1984, Big Brother is watching you. One of the things that it means to me now, which I was not fully aware of at the time when I had the dream, is that my mother and by default I were under constant surveillance even before I was born. And that surveillance has followed me all my life. 
and it has been a shadow reality for me. And personally, even though it isn't a a sleeping dream, it's a waking dream, today is a good day for me to publicly offer thanks to all those men and who knows how many women who have been watching me my entire life and interfering with my ability to find work. Because when I got past being a substitute newspaper delivery kid, I didn't have my own route, but I had a lot of friends who had routes, and I used to substitute for them. Uh, So they could do whatever it was they needed to do. A sort of beginning community ministry, if you will. (laughs) I hadn't thought about it that way, but that's really what it was. And my... Because I am a red diaper baby, because I was raised with fairly radical convictions about the world, I tended to work for nonprofits and community change agencies and whatnot. And throughout my life, I have never been employed for more than a year before somebody, presumably the FBI, visits my employers and says, you realize what a dangerous radical that kid is, and you realize that your government, federal government subsidies are in danger as long as you keep hiring him. And because I picked the kind of places that I picked to work for, my liberal employers were thrown into this horrible dilemma which they usually solved by getting a little drunk and firing me with crocodile tears. (laughs) Oh, Jeremy, if it weren't for this, we would love to have kept you on, blah, blah. And it has forced me to be a freelancer. And that's what I need to thank them for. I could, at one time in my life, I was director of the Head Start program in Marin County. And I had the daily experience of going home exhausted and being able to name and count on the fingers of both hands the people whose lives were recognizably better because of the efforts that I put into that day. It's a pretty pretty serious source of feelings of self-worth. And eventually... The visitors persuaded my parent policy council to fire me. And that was really the last straw. When I got fired from being the best Head Start director they ever saw, because the regional representative from Region 9 came out on his own time on the weekends and organized them to get rid of me. And it was that point that I decided there just is no point in trying to get a job and trying to get tenure and trying to get on the core faculty and all those things that I thought would be so neat. I really just have to grit my teeth and buckle down and be a freelancer. And it was in my freelance mode that I realized the thing I most wanted to do in the world was projective dream work. And 
Six months after I got fired from Marin Head Start, I realized that I had been cheating myself for years because six months later I was making more money as a dream worker than I ever made as a Head Start director. And I've been on that path ever since. And your evil twin congregation, the Berkeley Fellowship, (laughs) down on Bonita, (laughs) decided that what I was doing was the kind of ministry that they wanted to support and that the most effective way for them to get noticed as supporting this kind of ministry was to ordain me. And they offered me ordination. I went, sounds too much like working for the man. But I thought about it, and my dear friend Paul Sawyer, hands over the heart for Paul Sawyer, said, Jeremy, come on. You know, this is a great opportunity. Take it. Do it. And I went, yeah, yeah, well, you've driven me crazy, Paul, but your analysis has never been wrong. So, sure, okay. And that was how I became an ordained Unitarian Universalist minister. And the impetus for that early, early on in my life was participating in liberal religious youth, again, hands over the heart for deceased liberal religious youth, in Buffalo, New York. And this whole focus on Unitarian Universalism in large measure has been motivated out of gratitude because LRY saved my life as a chronically depressed adolescent. And I found these other chronically depressed adolescents who were having the same experience that I was. They were being tormented in school for the very things that we liked each other for. So we made this little cadre of sane people in the midst of this utterly insane society we lived in. And it was made even worse in those days because it was Buffalo, New York, which meant that we were in snow up to our armpits until June. It was, it was, Buffalo was hard. And in those days, it was literally and figuratively the last gasp of the big smokestack industry. So not only were we up to our armpits in snow until June, the snow itself was gray to black. I lived year after year watching black snow fall on on where I lived. And any time you went outdoors, you got filthy, absolutely filthy, from all the soot that was bound up in in the snowflakes. So here I am today, even more passionately believing in the value of understanding what is commonly called the unconscious, not only because it's the best show in town, but because it's what really drives the wheels of history and current events and popular culture. We come immediately on the question of free will at that point, I think. And my experience as a dream worker and as someone focused on conscious relations with the unseen hand of the unconscious, the unseen giant's hand, to go back to my early dream. That dream predicted and in fact 
announced that I was already unwilling to buy the patriarchal religious story about God the Father. Now, one of the reasons for that was I was the only child of a very intelligent and dynamic and crazy single mother. So Goddess the Mother made much more sense to me personally than God the Father did, but all my relationships with God the Father were terrible. And so it was very easy for me to migrate through all of that. And again, the thing that seemed like the worst part of my childhood, that I had no present father and what few contacts I had with him were heartbreaking, I have to thank him for that. Because, buckle up, here it comes, the shadow, what Carl Jung calls the shadow, in whatever form it takes, awake or asleep, always holds as a hostage of the seemingly irredeemable negative face that it presents, the very thing that is required, the very thing that individuals and small groups and whole societies and cultures require in order to move authentically in the direction of greater health and wholeness. The shadow always does that, which means that every encounter with a shadow is a secret moral drama. The worse the shadow is, the surer you can be. Please don't take my word for this. It's all way, way, way too important to take anybody's word for, least of all mine. But I would urge you to keep your mind open to the possibility that the absolutely worst things and worst people and worst situations in your life have hidden, because of their seemingly irredeemable face, the very thing that you and I and everybody need. And at the moment, that shadow is being pumped up on purpose to focus on radical Muslim extremists. Now, I believe I understand why the president does not want to use the word Muslim when he's talking about them, but unfortunately, I think it is one of the things that his ridiculous opponents have right. We should call things by their right names, and Islam does have to do with the rise in terrorism. It is a distorted form of Islam, and... It means by focusing on that, we are invited not to focus on radical Christian extremists who, if you look at the statistics, are as responsible for mayhem and death inside the homeland. Whose nostalgic European idea was that? (laughs) Homeland. Give me a break. Uh, This is not our homeland. I like those little things that Northern Sun is putting out where you have a bunch of really scruffy-looking First Nations people and it says, the first enforcers of homeland security. (laughs) (laughs) This is not our homeland. We're all immigrants. And one of the things that needs to happen is that we need to think clearly and unpack the propaganda that we breathe in every day. 
and choose our paths in relation to what we know is true rather than being comfortable lemmings in the crowd of folks who, for whom it's just too much trouble to think. I also want to raise a point about institutional sexism. We live in a period where institution, the, the, the depredations of institutional sexism in the lives of women is increasingly known to people who are paying attention. What is still suppressed, and I don't think it's an accident, is the depredations of sexism on men. And as an aging man, I want to testify to you, and I suspect there are enough aging men in the room that I'm not the only one who's willing to do it, that one of the main problems with sexism Patriarchal sexism is that it makes it very difficult for men to actually become mature. Maturity in men is discouraged, and the reason is quite simple, because if men grow up and get mature, this sexism nonsense reveals itself for the crazy, oppressive garbage that it is. And the patriarchs cannot afford to have a growing cadre of mature men who know that and who alter our lives in response to that understanding. They can't afford to do that, so there are all of these pressures in place to prevent us from doing that. And it's one of the reasons why aging is so hard on men. Again, the, the statistics are very clear more men in retirement commit suicide than women by a ratio of more than three to one. And from my point of view, as a dream worker, doing dream work with a lot of men that I knew decades ago as vibrant workers who are now in retirement and facing that vacuum of self-worth, since one of the things patriarchal sexism does to us men is to invite us to invest our self-worth in our earning ability. And it gets reinforced by saying how important and valuable that is to do when you've got a family. So retirement, which on the one hand is presented as this golden thing that we've been working for the whole time, has the unexpected consequence of robbing many, many men. I would say most men, but, you know, my, my sample is biased, of the senses of worth that we cultivated the whole time we were adults. And you destroy somebody's sense of self-worth and offer no real compensation beyond that, other than golf and alcoholism and maybe football, suicide is, is understandable. I think it's preferable to alcohol, golf, and football. Uh, but think for a moment what the pressures are on men who do not look to alcohol, golf, and football as what they want to do in retirement. I'm sure there are enough men here in this room to know that there are places where it is physically dangerous to stand up and say that. That's how repression works. 
It's one of the reasons why I'm a dream worker. My 50 plus years experience, that doesn't even count the apprenticeship time before I worked up nerve enough to charge money for it. I didn't even really charge money. To ask for donations to do the work is that all dreams, even and particularly the worst gut-wrenching, sweat-popping nightmares, come in the service of health and wholeness and speak a universal language. And that the paradoxical truth of the matter is the worse the nightmare is on first encounter, the surer you can be that the information that it has to convey is profoundly and immediately available to promote the health and wholeness not only of the individual who has the dream, but the entire species. The universality of the language of dreams demonstrates that the health and wholeness that they come to serve is not limited by the envelope of skin of the individual dreamer. Yes, it all comes to serve the health and wholeness of the individual, but beyond that, the universal language, Carl Jung calls it archetypal. I happen to like that language, but... I'm not wedded to it. You can use any language you like to talk about these large recurring patterns of meaning in the information that we acquire. Those patterns seen below the surface of appearance regularly end up inviting the conscious mind that has recognized them into activities that promote not only the individual's health and wholeness, but the health and wholeness of the entire species and the planet. You can see that my unique personality is particularly attuned to that health and wholeness promoting information when it comes in classic trickster form. The trickster's greatest trick is to persuade individually the waking mind and collectively society as a whole to willingly participate in activities the end result of which or it's not an end uh, the unanticipated result of which is extreme discomfort and disorientation One of the most interesting efforts to codify what Carl Jung calls the archetypes of the collective unconscious is what we know of as the tarot deck. And one of the cards in the tarot deck describes this situation that I'm trying to talk about visually. There is a person in most decks. It is a gender ambiguous character who looks more like a man than not. He's hanging upside down by one foot. His leg is crossed so that he makes sort of an upside down number four. His hands appear to be tied behind his back. And there is an aureole of light coming from his body. And because of the way the brain works, when seen right side up, he has a kind of beatific smile on his face. But when we look at it, it's a downward curving mouth that evokes 
sorrow and upset. And you don't really see the expression naturally and immediately till you turn the card over. It is called the hanged man. And the hanged man is the natural archetypal consequence of the tower struck by lightning, which is analogized to uh, the Tower of Babel. And the story that goes with it is that uh, I think it's Nimrod, although the name of the king varies from different versions, decides to build a tower all the way to heaven so that human beings can make it on their own rather than having to rely on this unreliable character. And it looks like they're going to make it, and God gets anxious and strikes the tower by lightning. And another one of the consequences is the proliferation of human language so that we can't understand each other anymore. One of the reasons for doing dream work is that we do, in fact, have a universal language that unites us with everybody. And it is the language of dreams. I would say, to use the Jungian term, the language of archetypes. And the more we consciously know about how that works, the more effective we can be in the world. Again, looking at the amount of gray and white hair in the room, I would say that probably most everyone in this room has had the experience of looking after aging and consciously disintegrating loved ones, partners and parents. And if you've had that experience, you've almost undoubtedly gone to one of those board and care homes. And when you're there, the chances, the statistical chances that you ran into one of these folks is very high. These are the distraught folks who wander around in the hall, usually wringing their hands and asking people what time it is. And you tell them what time it is, and you point to the clocks, and they go, oh, yeah. And then less than a minute later, they're wringing their hands asking what time it is. One of the interesting things about these folks is that really, they're not interested in clock and calendar time. They're asking, essentially, how late is it? And if you respond to them by saying, gee, I don't know exactly how late it is, but I know it's getting later. I know as we, as we speak, it's getting later. That response is pretty much statistically guaranteed to alter their obsessive mindset. A lot of them will just get calm because for the first time in who knows how long they're getting an answer to this question which is torturing them. And some of them will get even more energized and, and ask really clear questions like, how much time is there left? And I don't know what you say to that. My sense is, I don't know. I don't know how much time there's left. I certainly know it's less than it used to be. Uh, what do you want to do about that? So a regular consequence of knowing more about how the language of the unconscious, the universal language of the unconscious, suddenly makes it possible to make human contact with demented folks. Because the details of their dementia are like the details of their dreams. 
And if you can understand what the underlying, Jung would call them archetypal patterns are, you can engage with them and have an impact on how distraught they are. That's just one example of how our lives change when we become more consciously aware of how this really works. And the easiest way, this is an advertisement, (laughs) the easiest way to do that is to get together with other people and share the dreams that we remember from sleep and engage in conversation with them about what we all imagine these dreams might mean. And the most important thing to remember when you're doing that is that it's all projection. And that just because it's projection doesn't mean it isn't true. And if the projection is a response to something that is, in some sense, objectively true out in the waking world, then that truth will automatically draw the corresponding projection out of everyone present because the process of projection is unconscious. We do not do it on purpose. And part of the bad news about that, from the perspective of most Unitarians and Universalists, is that no amount of conscious effort can prevent it from happening. All that is possible in my experience, and this is now 50 plus years, is that we can come to the point of recognizing that we are projecting and have projected and shortening the time between the projection jumping spontaneously from us and the conscious recognition, oh shit, it's happening again. You can squeeze that time down, but I don't believe you can stop it. Yes. Jeremy, I hate to tell you how much time you have left after that. Right. <laughs> but you only have about ten minutes for okay. questions. Well, so. that's, you know, that's the basic story. <laughs> that's basically what's going on. Are there questions or comments or stuff? I did dream work in one of your groups, and I noticed that I was the only one in the group who wrote out my dreams in detail. And after after the group was over, I continued my dream dialogue. And... um, There are archetypes that seem to have followed me out of my dreams, and they seem to want to convince me that they come from somewhere else. And some of the one thing they do is if something is lost, people ask me, Where is it? And I don't know, but my inner self tells me where it is. I go there, and there it is. In waking life. Yeah. 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 So uh, it's kind of scary when <laughs> these figures from the subconscious start walking around in the conscious world. Yeah. Well, my experience is exactly like yours, only what I know, just because I know it on the basis of my experience doesn't mean anybody else knows it on the basis of their experience, but what I know is they've been walking around the whole time and I hadn't noticed. (laughs) So really, there isn't that much reason to be disoriented by it. It does require a, a shift in thinking and perception, but it's a shift in my experience once the 
the potential paralysis of the shock passes toward more clarity rather than less. And one of the reasons I'm a Unitarian Universalist is that I believe these deep patterns that Carl Jung calls archetypes of the collective unconscious must be responsible to what we know from the rational materialist world. Just because they don't appear rational and they don't appear material doesn't mean they are exempt from critical thought. And right there, you've lost 90% of the world's religions. And even though Unitarian Universalism is noble in its continuing willingness to celebrate individual conscience as the only legitimate source of spiritual authority, you would think that an institution with the responsibility of defending that position would behave in a more mature fashion. (laughs) But it doesn't. (laughs) And so I remain loyal to the tradition in the midst of countless lovers' quarrels with Boston which get worse and worse as time progresses. Because the folks in Boston are terrified because they haven't the faintest expletive deleted idea about what to do, really. But they're terrified to admit that publicly, so they invent all this rhetoric about, oh, we really know what to do, and, you know, being kind and loving is all that's needed, etc., etc., when the evidence is that's not true. Being kind and loving is absolutely valuable. We are certainly not alone in promoting that. What we are alone in promoting is that that must also withstand the criticism of serious conscious thought. And you find zero discussion of serious conscious thought defending that position, even in Unitarian Universalist circles. It is a scandal. And I continue to dance around with the mindset of a missionary in my own tradition, to which I am fiercely loyal. But that does not mean that I'm fiercely loyal to anyone pretending to be a pope. This does not include popes. It only includes the priesthood of believers. Mac. So, quick question. I was very interested in your analysis of men. The, I think that you completely left out a similar analysis of women, and I think it is just as, oh. just as serious. Yes, I, I agree. I agree. I left it out because the sociologist in me says that general cultural understanding of the oppressions of women via institutional sexism is way further along. It isn't finished. It hasn't... The issue of mature women, how, what does it really mean to be a mature woman, is abandoned even by the most important feminist leaders as they age. I was hoping that we would hear a great deal more on that question from people like Betty Friedan. And I don't know, she may have been orating and writing about this, but part of the way it works is that those orations and writings are not anywhere near as available, even with the magical Internet. 
So it looks like there aren't very many people doing that, and it looks like that the, the women who are doing that are scoffed at. Uh, it's indeed it's crucial, and as yes, yes. Hi, is, is I'm the, over here. Ah, you've got um, the microphone. It's more of a yes. general question. Um, doing dream work for so many years, I was wondering, in my own experience, I've had a lot of um, reoccurring dreams. And the ones that I've found to be very important throughout my life, I've woke up in a, a pool of sweat. Yeah. And I'm wondering if that's something that you've experienced in the dream circles, hearing about people waking up with you know, a physical change in their body, and if oh, you yeah. could comment on that. Yeah, that was one of the reasons for the, sweat, for the phrase sweat-popping nightmares. Uh, yeah, it happens, it happens all the time. And it's very hard, even for the dreamer who consciously knows it, to be in the middle of such a dream and go, oh, the point of this dream is that the information is particularly important. The point of this dream is not how bad it makes me feel, but that distress is one of the most reliable elements in promoting memory. Yeah. Yeah. So the same thing is true of the the vast consciousness opening beautiful dreams. And the instrument of the body tends to respond in its own bodily fashion to these big energy surges. Uh, and waking life consistently trains us to go, uh-oh, when stuff like that happens. Even though in the context that I think you and I are talking about, it is a very reliable marker of how valuable the experience is. Even if I wake up with the thought, oh, expletive deleted, this would have been better if I hadn't had this dream at all. Even if it's a good dream. Look, my heart's pounding. I, I feel odd. Uh, I'm not sure I can stand up properly if I get up out of bed. That kind of stuff. Yes. Yeah. Um, three quotes by women that I think point to the mature woman. Yeah. Um, Andrew Dworkin said, pornography is lies about women. Eleanor Roosevelt said, no one can make you feel inferior without your permission. And Snoopy Botten said, discrimination is about crushing a person's spirit. Yeah. Um, with the exception of the Eleanor Roosevelt quote, both of those fall on my ears as tactical rather than strategic. And what's required is a larger, I think anyway, my shameless projection is that what's required is a much larger strategic understanding of what's going on. Uh, there was a story that us reasonably motivated Head Start directors, which certainly isn't all of them, used to tell to each other. There's a guy fishing, and while he's fishing, a baby comes floating down the river. 
And he flounders into the water and grabs the kid and takes it back to the bank. And then he sees more babies floating down. And there are more than he can deal with. So he calls to the people on the bridge and says, come on down here and help me rescue these babies. And they all come down and everybody's in the water doing, you know, bucket brigade baby saving. And the guy starts to leave. And everybody says, wait, wait, you can't leave. You've got to save the babies. And he says, no, you guys have got that under control now. I'm going to go upstream and see who's throwing them in. <laughs> and that's the kind of, that's what I call strategic thinking as opposed to tactical thinking. And the society, even these ardent and intelligent and eminently respectable feminists that you quote, are still, from my shameless projected point of view, dazzled by the lack of tactics rather than looking at the larger questions of strategy. See, I wouldn't even agree that explicitly sexual material is pornographic. Um, I would say, well... (laughs) get myself in trouble even with this crowd. (laughs) I would say, and I'm certainly not alone in saying it, that there is an archetypal association, certainly in the dream world, and I believe it's true in the waking world as well, between explicit, overt sexual experience and spiritual direct experience. That the from the language, from the point of view of the language of the collective unconscious, sexual imagery is spiritual, whether the people engaging in it and perverting in it and indulging in it have any conscious idea that that's true or not. It doesn't matter whether they know it's conscious or not. It's still true. It's like what everybody says about science these days. The nice thing about science is it's true whether you believe it or not. (laughs) And the same thing for essentially the same direct experience reasons is true about the influence of symbolic events on waking life. And pornography, what is commonly called pornography, has paradoxically at its core something about accepting the worst attack, the, somebody else's attack for the purpose of creating pain and enjoying someone else's pain, is, among other things, a metaphor of unconditional love. Because if you're only willing to love people as long as they don't hurt you, it's not unconditional. But if you recognize that even the conscious effort to hurt you is not a deal breaker, then a lot of what gets called pornography is stealth spiritual wisdom. And you can all throw tomatoes later. I mean, got Jeremy, I, I really wish we could continue with I this. But yes. Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And... Um, if you are interested in Jeremy's workshop, the sign-up the sign up sheets are on the back table back there by Matt. And there will be, when is the workshop? The workshop is February 27th, yep. and then um, there's a six-week class coming up yep. in uh, March. I don't remember yeah. when it starts. And is there any limit on the enrollment in the workshop? 
um, the Hepat Salami. Okay. All right. <laughs> she's she's yeah. handling that. If you so. find she's any saying, any of this interesting, I would urge you to come to the workshop on February 27th. We got a lot to sign up.